But right now to our feature interview. Professor Ian Brighthope is a retired medical doctor from Melbourne. He spent his professional career in nutritional medicine, environmental medicine and uh, intravenous therapies. He was the founding president of the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. He's also deeply involved in the medical cannabis industry and is in fact the founder of Entura, a medical cannabis manufacturer in Australia. Now, he's joined me to talk about among other things, to talk uh, about uh, vitamin C, his CD zinc protocol, and whether or not we need to have our natural health supplements regulated. I asked him first, though, about his background. He's a trained medical doctor, yet he had a career working mainly with natural therapies and not pharmaceuticals. So why was that? Ian, thank you for joining us, and uh, a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for the invitation to speak, uh, Peter, and hello, everybody. Um, look, I uh, graduated in agricultural science. That was my first uh, scientific love. And then I studied medicine after doing a number of years research in animal nutrition. Uh, when I graduated in medicine, I was disappointed in the medical course because there was no teaching about nutrition and nutritional health, yet we saw many, many patients who uh, were unwell because of malnutrition. Uh, too much fats and refined carbohydrates uh, and uh, nutrient-deficient diets, so contributing to their unwellness and their, their illness. So that's the background as to uh, why I uh, changed from um, purely being a drug-prescribing doctor uh, or cut-burn-and-poison-type doctor, as we sometimes describe them, uh, to being somebody who looked at patients from a holistic perspective. And this was very foreign when I started back in the uh, late 1970s to start uh, treating patients with diet and supplements, eliminating uh, foods and chemicals from their, their environment uh, and looking for the actual cause of their cancers, heart disease, strokes, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, allergies, autoimmune diseases, etc. So it was a... Uh, a shock to a lot of my colleagues that uh, I had a different perspective on health because health to me was where you produce a person or an animal that's productive and uh, and not sick. So um, uh, that uh, was a serious change for myself. It was also a shock to uh, most of my profession who many didn't appreciate what I was trying to do. Yes, I was going to ask you about the pushback uh, you would have got from your colleagues with the, the course that you took, because I remember during COVID talking to a New Zealand doctor, Alison Goodwin, in Hawke's Bay. She has subsequently lost her licence to practice in this country because she refused to get vaccinated for COVID-19. But uh, she said to me in the interview, and it's, it's a very profound statement that I've remembered for three years now, I think it is, since I, I talked to her. She said, you know, in medical school, they teach you about illness and they teach you about drugs, but they don't teach you about health. Now, is that a fair comment or is that just oversimplifying things a bit? No, that's absolutely correct, uh, Peter. They don't teach you about health at all. In fact, uh, when it comes to uh, seeing a doctor about uh, the aspects of health, uh, they'd probably be the last professional I'd go and see because uh, it's very, very difficult to uh, get them to think about uh, a diet uh, and nutrients, which is 
the essential building blocks for keeping people alive and healthy and productive and also reproductive. Uh, we know we do this with animals. We supplement their diet with nutrient-dense foods and sometimes supplements and uh, salt licks and vitamins and so on so that we have uh, animals that can reproduce and produce healthy offspring and the healthy offspring grow rapidly and produce meat and milk and wool, uh, eggs and other produce. So uh, we don't look at productivity in human beings. Basically, uh, doctors are trained to think and act in terms of disease and disease only. You make a diagnosis, you prescribe treatment, and that's it. Uh, and most people sitting in front of a doctor, whether it be a specialist or a GP, are people who've got building block inadequacies, deficiencies, imbalances. And when I say building blocks, I mean every single nutrient in the system that we can think of. So um, we, we are actually a very, very dangerous part of a so-called healthcare system. Uh, and that's why I've always argued with the politicians here, including the health minister, the prime minister, that we need to have two departments. We need to have an excellent department of medical care and hospital care. Uh, we also need to have an excellent department of health so that when somebody is being treated by a doctor for their disease, somebody comes in and also makes them healthy with advice regarding mind-body medicine, exercise, uh, the right diet, the elimination of foods that are causing problems, removal of uh, chemicals from their environment if they're susceptible to chemicals, the treatment of their home if they've got fungi and spores and moulds in their home, uh, and the use of uh, nutritional supplements to replace those uh, that are deficient. And when we talk about the most common deficiency uh, in humans, probably vitamin C and vitamin D. Uh, there are many others, of course, but these are the critical ones that uh, are so important, especially during times of epidemics and viruses. You talk so much sense. Uh, it, uh, it seems even to a layperson like me who is not educated at all in the sciences, but what you've said is just so logical. Why do you believe there is such a pushback against your way of thinking from your medical colleagues? There's always a reason, uh, Peter, and sometimes the reasons are basically uh, when you look for uh, causes of problems, it's usually got something to do with human interference. Uh, and in this respect, it is absolute human interference. It's uh, human interference. Always chase money, the source of the money. And when um, modern medicine was established, uh, there was a takeover, a hijacking of the training of doctors by the chemical industry. I'm talking here about the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, the medical schools get money to run. The, uh, the drug companies sponsor the research. The drug companies sponsor the medical journals. Uh, the medical journals are dependent to a large extent, in, including the high-end, uh, power, uh, powerful medical journals such as the Lancet, BMJ, New England Journal of Medicine, etc. These are all beneficiaries of um, the, uh, the drug cartels, if you like. So uh, looking for the truth in, uh, in medicine is sometimes very difficult, and even the medical journal editors have been very, very critical of their own journals uh, and sometimes come out with statements like 90% of the, uh, med uh, the material that's published is rubbish, uh, and uh, comments like that that uh, um, 
quite often uh, studies are published that should not be published. Um, they're biased, uh, prejudiced. There's been, there've been faults in the studies, but um, most doctors and specialists just read the headlines and the abstract and uh, and take the word of the uh, the medical journal for uh, the publication, whereas they don't realise that it's been influenced to a large extent by uh, the corporate dollar. Yet one of the most staggering things I've read, and it was through uh, a hyperlink from another story, the the British Medical Journal, journal the, the BMJ, has uh, written about the amount of drug company funding in government's drug regulation agencies. And apparently Australia is the worst culprit in this respect, and that your TGA, your Therapeutic Goods Agency, or Therapeutic Goods Authority, I think it is, uh, is 96% funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I, I mean, is that true as you understand it? That's just staggering, isn't it? And, and I just wonder how yeah. prevalent that kind of funding is around the Western world. I mean, in New Zealand, it's, it's, the, the subject is never raised, uh, but I wonder whether it happens here as well. Well, you're quite right, uh, Peter. Uh, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, as it's known here okay. in Australia, or the TGA, is funded 96 to 97% by industry. The government decided a long time ago that it was meant to be cost-neutral, so the government didn't have to pay for it. So uh, who pays for it? It's the industry. And I can tell you the industry has a profound and powerful effect on uh, the regula regulatory body. They may think uh, they're independent. They may plead they're independent, but the the, the effects uh, are there very much so. And they, I have uh, dined with uh, health ministers and prime ministers at private dinners, and you always, if it's got something to do with health, see the beer, wine and spirits industries, uh, tobacco industries' interests, uh, and the pharmaceutical industry's interests at these dinners. Uh, and I've overheard conversations that don't worry, Mr. Uh, Mr. Brown, uh, I make sure the minister will sign it uh, off tomorrow for you. I mean, this is where <clears throat> the interpersonal relationships between the heads of pharmaceutical companies and the heads of our healthcare um, ministries uh, actually get together and do their deals. Uh, and let me say, these deals are not necessarily in the interests of the public that they're meant to be servicing. They are interests in the industry profits. And the profits in the industry, as we know from this COVID exercise, $30 billion, 30,000 million US dollars have gone into the pockets of Moderna, one of the vaccine manufacturers. This is money is better spent by the uh, the, the um, finance uh, ministers and treasurers of our country on things like education, housing, and proper health care, rather than on uh, experimental injections. All right, I'd like to talk to you about the proposal for a therapeutic products bill. Uh, which is uh, under consideration by our government at the moment, essentially looking to regulate uh, nutritional, natural supplements in this country. But what's the story in Australia? Because uh, I'll lay my cards on the table here, Ian. I I'm a great uh, fan of vitamin C. I take uh, lipospheric vitamin C, which is, uh, I think, 
even though it tastes horrible and it's uh, it's awful to administer and it's expensive, uh, I find it's it's worked very well for me for about the five years or so that I've been taking it. Yet the man who distributes it uh, around New Zealand tells me that uh, he can't sell it to, say, the chemist warehouse in Australia. It cannot be retailed in Australia. So how regulated are nutritional supplements uh, in Australia already? Well, the um, Therapeutic Goods Act was uh, passed in 1989. The regulations came into force in 1991, which meant the TGA took over the regulation of vitamins. I'll just use vitamins because it's vitamins, herbs, uh, minerals, all those things that uh, we call um, complementary medicines or natural health products. For the next nine years after the TGA took over, there was not one single new entity that came into the marketplace in Australia. That meant a lot of Australians missed out on new vitamins, uh, new supplements that were being uh, marketed around the world in places like the US and Canada and the UK and Europe and so on. So we missed out. So we had to buy in from overseas. Uh, And since then, um, the last 30 years, it's basically the same thing. It's very, very difficult getting a new entity into the marketplace in Australia, so people in Australia have to buy uh, online products manufactured somewhere else in the world, which may not be manufactured under the same high standards that the TGA insists on here in Australia. Now, there was only one good thing about the TGA with regard to regulation of complementary medicines, and that is the quality here is recognised as top. It's recognised as the best in the world because we have to manufacture under the international pharmaceutical standards known as PICS. So we have high-quality product here, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have the the, uh, uh, the complete range of things that uh, pub- the public should get here. Uh, and I'll mention uh, a couple, N-acetyl cysteine, melatonin. Uh, you can buy melatonin in nearly every uh, airport in the world. But we can't even buy it here. Uh, it's under prescription only. So, uh, and it's a necessary agent for the treatment of COVID and long COVID in vaccination reactions now. So we are at a disadvantage. And I remember um, <clears throat> back in the early 2000s, late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, when uh, MedSafe, your uh, regulator, and the TGA were talking about harmonisation. And I remember very uh, succinctly going into uh, New Zealand being invited by some of my colleagues over there, including John, that uh, we needed to do something uh, to dissuade uh, the uh, authorities in New Zealand from taking over and and copying the TGA. Because, you know, even back then, uh, Australians were buying products from New Zealand that they couldn't get here in Australia because of the over-regulation. We were promised the regulatory system would be soft touch uh, rather than, you know, a heavy handed uh, regulatory authority that it became. We knew that was a lie. We knew that that wasn't going to happen, and it didn't happen. Um, we do have a very powerful and strong industry here now, but only with the, uh, with the substances that we're allowed to make. And uh, I believe that we you should have a, uh, a completely independent uh, regulatory system in New Zealand that has the manufacturing uh, standards of GMP or good manufacturing practices uh, as high as you possibly can, but please keep it away from the hands of those who are involved in the medical industry and the pharmaceutical industry. 
It should be completely independent of, of those uh, entities because they are only interested in disease and drugs and they will put down anything that has uh, a health benefit or promotes health uh, and reduces the incidence of disease. And let me put it to you and your listeners, Peter, that we prevent many of the cancers, a lot of the heart disease, uh, diabetes, etc. if doctors were properly trained in nutritional medicine and the use of, judicious use of diet and nutritional supplements to um, save us from the forthcoming tsunami of degenerative disease that we're seeing in the Western world now. As a basis um, or, or as a consequence of the, the things that we have been eating and, and the bad diets we've had for, for so many years. Uh, Ian, the, the, the government tells us that the regulator they're planning to put in for our therapeutic products, our nutritional supplements, will be independent. Uh, I don't know what process they're going through, who that person will be, but I do know that uh, people like John Appleton, who's the importer of lipospheric vitamin C, are going to have to pay uh, to get their products approved. Now, that is only going to push up the price for consumers, yet you would say, well, these things are actually good for the public, they should be getting them at a lower price, not at a higher price. So you should be getting them at a, a lower price? Absolutely, Peter. I mean, uh, let me get, tell you about the uh, inequality that occurred here in Australia when they introduced GST, goods and services tax. Medicines were exempt, yet complementary medicines were not exempt. So people have to pay GST on their complementary medicines. They don't have to pay GST on their drugs. This is wrong. It should be the other way around. Mm, and it's quite, quite... I only hope that, that uh, the same situation doesn't occur in New Zealand. In fact, uh, you should be able to keep a receipt for the complementary medicines and use that as a tax deductibility because if you have been prescribed or recommended a complementary medicine for preventing disease such as diabetes or heart disease, or treating a disease such as diabetes and heart disease where it reduces the uh, progression of the disease, then you're doing something for your own health. You're also increasing your productivity in the community, and as a consequence of that, you're paying more taxes. So the government needs to realise that a healthy population is what we should be aiming at, not a population full of disease and sick people taking a whole lot of drugs. You uh, featured in a television program here, and gosh, it's going back some years, uh, regarding a gentleman who was a farmer in the North Island called Alan Smith. He uh, yeah. uh, had a very bad attack of, of swine flu, and they were about to turn off life support for him at, uh, at Auckland Hospital. His family insisted on intravenous vitamin C in significant quantities. He recovered... Uh, to my knowledge, he is still with us today, happy and healthy. Uh, yet the medical profession, and there was a, a, an intensivist uh, from Auckland Hospital who said it was just essentially coincidence that he recovered after his vitamin C treatment. Uh, how many other success stories have you seen like that with the, uh, the, the, the sick getting so much better after the use of intravenous vitamin C because it's something that you've worked extensively in, isn't it? 
Yes, Peter, and you've got that story about Alan Smith, 100% perfect. Um, I was contacted by one of my colleagues at the time, and uh, that's what we recommended. Uh, Alan was on uh, ECMO, or full life support, for six weeks. As you say, uh, he had uh, lung failure, his kidneys had failed, and he also had hairy cell leukaemia, and he was unconscious, induced uh, unconscious state on uh, full life support. He was given 100,000 milligrams of vitamin C intravenously uh, and his lungs started breathing and his kidneys started functioning and his hairy cell leukaemia disappeared. Now, according to the intensivist, that was all a coincidence. Well, it's all documented and it's on a 60-minute show. It's on the YouTube. And uh, the, the, uh, the story, I use that story constantly in my lectures about people who are in intensive care with COVID on ventilators. Um, people should not be in intensive care on ventilators uh, because vitamin C or ascorbic acid, it's a proper name, is a redox reagent that is most powerful and profound in reducing the harmful effects of radicals or free radicals and the harmful effects of oxidising free radicals occur when you get viruses. If you run out of vitamin C, instead of the virus just being in your nose and throat, it goes down to your lung. And if it's, if it's very, very low down there, you end up with pneumonia. And if that happens, well, you end up uh, on a ventilator or dying. You end up with acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS or acute lung injury, lung failure uh, or ARLI. And ending up like that is basically a vitamin C deficiency. Yes, there are other nutrients that are very, very important as well. But the one that reverses things very quickly is uh, the intravenous C. And we did a study on COVID uh, in, uh, in, in Turkey. Uh, and we showed quite clearly that high-dose intravenous vitamin C gets you out of intensive care very quickly. Better than that, if you have it, an entrance to the hospital, you end up maybe going into the ward but not going into intensive care. You know, we, we have ignored the powerful effects of high-dose intravenous vitamin C for far too, young, too long. And <clears throat> going back to the HIV AIDS days where I started giving the uh, high-dose intravenous vitamin C to, to uh, patients dying from um, pneumonia, we reversed the pneumonia very, very quickly with these patients. And these patients had immune deficiencies, severe immune deficiencies. So even in compromised individuals, it works and it can work very well. But my profession needs to learn how to read, how to understand, and how to stop following drug-related protocols. My, I've had arguments with intensivists in Australia about giving somebody some high-dose intravenous vitamin C, and they say it's not on our protocol. I say, if it's not on your protocols, what comes first, the patient or your protocol? And they can't answer because these people now who are coming out of medical school are essentially robots, druggists and robots. They do not know how to make a patient healthy. They don't know how to reverse a disease process using nutrients. That's what they don't learn at university, in medical school, and it's a shame. It's a heinous crime on humanity to be graduating people with just that mentality 
Uh, and let me tell you that the, the doctors I've trained for the last 20 years or retrained for the last 20 years are usually very grateful uh, for learning about something that helps them to help their patients because most doctors who go into, into medicine have a good heart, a good mind, a good brain and a good soul. Um, however, the system beats them and beats them brutally. Is vitamin C expensive? It is cheap. <laughs> it's the cheapest thing I can think of in terms of the most... For a, a therapeutic output, the cost input is infinitesimally small. Uh, it gets expensive by the time it reaches the uh, supermarket or health food store shelf um, because there are a number of... Uh, uh, levels whereby profit is made, but uh, it's very, very cheap. I mean, remember uh, being able to buy a kilo for something like 10 Australian dollars per kilo. So really, um, uh, it, it's more than that by the time it gets into uh, the shops. But uh, in terms of its therapeutic effect and, and the value to the individual, the value to the community, uh, and the value in terms of reducing the costs of medicine and healthcare, uh, it's very cheap. What about uh, what about RCTs, randomised controlled trials? Ian, have there been a decent number of them? Because I know we're going back to two thousand and nine, but uh, the man from intensive care at Auckland Hospital, David Geller, said there hasn't been any trials. Uh, there's no literature, no medical literature about vitamin C uh, to show its effect. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether or not there's been any in the intervening time, uh, but. Is there uh, any more acceptance of vitamin C, intravenous vitamin C, nowadays than there was 14 years ago? Well, let me say that for the last 30 years, we've known the effects of vitamin C and uh, the way it works, even even more than 30 years, 40 years. Ever since I started, there was enough evidence to show that it uh, had a powerful effect on as an antiviral agent, as an antibacterial agent, as a, an immune-supporting agent, as an agent that helped to uh, reduce the... Uh, um, the, the malignancies of certain cancer cells. Uh, we've known for a very long time its, it's mode of action, uh, Peter. Uh, yes, there, there, there were trials uh, back in the days of uh, when we were talking to uh, about uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Smith and uh, his swine flu in, in New York and uh, ICU. Um, but there's been even more trials done since then, and they're still ignoring it. Um, there are trials on sepsis. Very, very effective in sepsis. Very effective in uh, acute lung injury. Um, it's very effective in supporting the effects of, of the benefits of uh, cortisone or dexamethasone, which is very important in reducing the inflammation in the lungs in patients with COVID. Um, and the frontline uh, critical care clinicians in the US have been using it successfully in treating COVID. Uh, and there have been uh, trials published as well. So, I mean, how many trials were done with the vaccine, <laughs> not many. Well, we know, we know that. <laughs> the, yeah, the, um, the, uh, the there was another there was another case after uh, the, Mr. Smith's case in uh, Auckland, and that was a young lady in St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. She was sick and dying on a ventilator from swine flu. Um, she'd been compromised somehow, but anyway. Um, she was uh, on a lot of ICU drugs as well. Um, she was given 30 grams of high-dose intravenous vitamin C 
and she surprisingly got off the ventilator. But against my advice, the doctors stopped the vitamin C immediately, and she, she started to go downhill, and she ended up passing away. The message is, don't stop it. <laughs> you know, what a crazy thing to do when something's helped an individual and you stop it. There's no good reason for stopping it whatsoever, but they did, unfortunately. And let me tell you another case here in Melbourne. In the early days of COVID, Professor Rinaldo Bellamo at the Austin Hospital here in Melbourne gave a, a very sick uh, 39-year-old male with sepsis from COVID virus. The sepsis uh, was getting worse. Uh, his uh, oxygen saturations were diminishing. His pulse rate was going up. His temperature was going up. He was a very sick man, uh, and they were scared of losing him. So they experimented with 30 grams of vitamin C, 30,000 milligrams, actually reversed the sepsis and got him out of hospital. So Berlamo, uh, to the media, stated that the result was absolutely amazing. That was the word he used, amazing. Did they continue using it at that hospital? No. Did any other hospital take it up? No. Did I have arguments with intensivists around Australia subsequently? Yes. Even in front of lawyers, even in front of a Supreme Court judge, looking at a case where the family were pleading for their father to be given some high-dose intravenous vitamin C. The judge couldn't even do anything. The lawyers were arguing. The lawyer for the hospital uh, was... Uh, I can't be unprofessional, uh, but I can say words in the English language could not describe the behaviour. So that patient never got the vitamin C because the judge what, did not feel that he was able to tell doctors how to do their job? Precisely. Uh, Ian, you've uh, been pushing in recent times during the COVID era what you call the CD zinc protocol, vitamin C, vitamin D and zinc. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that? Tell me about the, the, the uh, quantities required, uh, how successful it's been in the patients you've put it to and what the establishment pushback against it has been because I suspect they didn't want to know anything about it, did they? No, they didn't, Peter. The um, CD Zinc campaign is, is nothing new. I'd been running those campaigns ever since uh, the AIDS days for uh, through the College of Nutritional Medicine and teaching doctors about CD and zinc during epidemics and publishing little papers about it. Uh, that uh, The population took vitamin C, D and zinc. Um, a severe flu would probably be asymptomatic or a mild cold-like illness in uh, the majority of the population and it would stop the vulnerable from dying and get, from getting very sick and dying. And this is the elderly, of course, and those with comorbidities, those with more than two and a half uh, comorbidities or 2.5 serious illnesses that re reduces, increases their vulnerability. Now, um, the CD Zinc campaign uh, came out again in, uh, in January, February of 2020. Um, uh, there was a bit of pushback from some of my colleagues uh, I wrote to the Prime Minister of Australia, uh, Scott Morrison, the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, 
uh, the Chief Medical Officer, Brendan Murphy, the head of the AMA, the head of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, the heads of unions, the heads of business. Nobody took any notice. Nobody wanted to know. So I employed a, um, uh, a public relations company uh, and we got a few articles in the newspapers up for about six months. Uh, I had uh, uh, some articles on the, the high-dose vitamin D because that was uh, a vitamin that didn't have the same level of controversy as vitamin C did. And vitamin D uh, was known, of course, by a lot of people to be uh, uh, the sunlight vitamin uh, and sunlight's good for you. So we did that campaign and we got newspaper articles and I've got uh, a congratulatory letter to um, Matt Hancock, the, the health minister in um, in the UK even. So um, that was um, a bit of a coup. However, the recommendation uh, didn't come from the government here for everybody to take vitamin D, no recommendation whatsoever. The UK government, of course, uh, recommended the UK population take some vitamin D, but the recommendation was 1,000 units per day. Well, 1,000 international units uh, would not even help a canary uh, during a pandemic. You need a lot more to bring the, your blood levels up to 125 to 150 units, 125 to 150 nanomoles per litre. That's the unit by which it's measured. So in the winter, of course, uh, in Australia, in Melbourne in particular, we end up with a large percentage of the population with deficiencies so, of vitamin D. Um, so the most important message here is why did the government and authorities not take heed to the advice that we were giving? in terms of increasing people's immunity and allowing the virus to cause natural immunity rather than synthetic immunity, which, of course, is not as good as the natural immunity. And we know, of course, that there were deals done between the drug companies manufacturing the vaccines and the government, that the vaccines would not be used because emergency use authorization is only allowed if there is no other medicine available to... to prevent or treat the condition. So the drug companies do their deal, and of course, as a result of the deals, nothing else was allowed to be promoted. And that included vitamin C, D and zinc, as well as the repurposed medications for the treatment, early treatment of COVID, known as azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. So the population was shut down, were forced to wear masks and watch television to see whether or not we could flatten the curve <laughs> or a waste of a time and energy um, and a waste of money. Uh, and as you know, Melbourne was one of the most lockdown cities in the world. Um, we, we were treated uh, brutally by uh, uh, somebody who liked to behave like a tyrant. Um, <clears throat> so we, we need to see uh, changes in attitudes towards healthcare people. Uh, we need to make sure that next time a virus comes, we are free to get infected. We are free to get infected safely. Are we free to get affected effectively so that our immunity is complete? And when I say complete, our immunity is complete from our mucous membranes to the deepest tissues in our, in, in, uh, in our bodies. And that means 
exposing ourselves to the virus so that the virus hits our nose, hits our throat, and raises an antibody called IgA, mucosal IgA. That is the point of first contact with the virus, and that's when the virus is blocked. It doesn't get into your system, or if it does, it produces IgG and IgM antibodies, and that's fine because that, that they do the final mopping up of the virus attack. If we don't have mucosal IgA in our nose and our throat, the virus goes straight into our system and causes chaos because virus by itself with IgG and IgM causes disease, illness, and it's responsible for the production of the cytokine storm, the inflammation in our lungs, the fluid in the air sacs in our lungs, and the, the same thing happening in our gut. Uh, the virus takes over uh, and it's like a foreign invader where there's been no weakening of it at the entrance, say the entrance to the fort, the entrance to our system. It is a complete fallacy to be giving an injection of a poison that raises IgG and IgA, sorry, IgG and IgM, when that poison doesn't cause the body to produce IgA. Ian, just IgA. finally, yeah. Ian, did you, did you get COVID and did you get vaccinated? <clears throat> no, I didn't get vaccinated. Uh, I, I don't want to take uh, a substance at all that uh, I don't understand that it, that it is genetic uh, and I don't uh, want to take a substance called lipid nanoparticles because I don't like nanomedicine and I don't like lipids that are synthetic because uh, all of my cell membranes in my brain, my nervous system is made up of lipids and these lipids interfere very, very, uh, they're very reactive. Uh, so it's not just the mRNA that I don't like. It's the lipid nanoparticles which carry it into every part of our body. And the, the other thing I didn't believe, the, the drug companies, I would never believe anything that, uh, that Pfizer put out uh, because Pfizer has been and still is, as far as I'm concerned, a criminal organisation. Um, and I don't mind saying that, but uh, they... Uh, to me, it's my opinion, um, and it's not uh, anything that's new to the world. Uh, Pfizer has been uh, fined billions of dollars for its behaviour in the past, uh, and uh, its behaviour this time uh, is substandard, let me put it that way. Um, so uh, I, was I was not vaccinated. I um, uh, was exposed to a room full of vaccinated individuals, uh, and after that exposure, uh, I had a heart attack uh, from the exosomes that they're breathing out. These vaccinated in individuals are not free of uh, contamination, and um, uh, exosomes are well known to be uh, highly toxic and reactive, uh, and I felt terrible after um, this exposure. Uh, and as a consequence, the next day I had a, a fairly significant heart attack and was taken to uh, hospital by air ambulance. Um, then a week after my heart attack, uh, I, got, I got home and um, one of my relatives brought home COVID. So I got COVID a week after. But because of my uh, 
general general well-being and health. Um, uh, it was virtually just a day of fatigue uh, and a bit of a headache, and that was it. So that's my personal story, and uh, uh, I maintained my health by really upping the doses of vitamin D, C, and zinc, and taking a few other things, including some ivermectin. Um, and uh, that's why I've been looking after everybody else um, during this period. And, trying to, and, uh, and your health, your heart health now is good? Oh, it's good. It's, it's, it's just over 12 months ago when that happened, uh, and um, <clears throat> I'm uh, functioning very well. I'm 77 next month, uh, and uh, I can exercise, no chest pain, no shortness of breath, no signs of heart failure, uh, perfect uh, um, sinus rhythm, uh, pulse rate's good, blood pressure's good. I'm not on any uh, of the drugs that uh, they prescribed for me, but I did uh, receive a stent to open up the artery that had been uh, been uh, caused to have uh, blocked by the um, exposure to the spike protein. Not my own spike protein, but spike protein and all of the other debris that were, was being um, uh, coughed out by um, a, a couple of the people in the room I was exposed to. Um, so, I mean, I'm very happy to point, the, point my finger at at the exosomes as the cause. Yes. Yeah. Ian, uh, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I know you have a, another commitment to uh, to go up to now, but I'm I'm delighted that you've been able to spend some time with us and, and uh, once again espouse the virtues of nutritional supplements. Uh, we have uh, quite a, a, a road ahead of us, I think, in this country about the regulation of uh of our nutritional supplements and you know those of us that take them on a on a daily basis might be unfortunately unpleasantly surprised when the regulator comes in and the prices go up so we will do our best to push back against it but thank you again for pointing out the value the benefit of uh, of of the work that you've been involved in with nutritional supplements and we never even got on to medicinal cannabis <laughs> That's okay, Peter. Maybe another time. Indeed. But I know that uh, you've only got one. You've only got one government over there to deal with. We've got a lot over here in Australia. I know that the Kiwis have always been uh, fighters. Uh, John, who introduced me to you, uh, he was involved in the early days and has been involved ever since. Uh, I'm sure with uh, some of your powerful friends over there, uh, get them behind uh, what uh, you're trying to achieve with regard to uh, softening the effects of a regulator. Uh, and make sure that some you uh, try to get the politicians on side to block any legislation that seems like it's going to be draconian. Ian Brighthope, thank you so much for joining us from Melbourne today. Thanks, Peter. Nice to meet you, and thank you very much. Wasn't that fascinating stuff? Professor Ian Brighthope joining me from Melbourne. That interview recorded yesterday. Uh, if you'd like to make any comments about what uh, Professor Brighthope had to say, uh, our email address is inbox at realitycheck.radio.